Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Farmers Capital Conversations, bringing you helpful strategies and practical resources to help you invest on and off the farm. If you find value today, don't hesitate to leave us an honest review and share the episode. Yes, this helps us, but more importantly, it could help someone else along their journey. Now, let's dive in without further ado. To challenge ourselves, uh, as my students challenged me and got me moving towards reduced tillage and no-till, I'd like to challenge us to add to our systems more cover crops. If we do nothing else, let's add more cover crops. Let's figure out ways to have parts of our farm be in living root, undisturbed, multi-species that bloom and provide sequential flowering for beneficial insects. Some part of our farms, let's have cover crops with a lot of diversity that we can then have some of these wonderful living roots and habitat for microorganisms and beneficial insects. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Today, we are joined with Helen Adhow. She is a farming expert with 35 years in the field. Her book, Ecological Farm, is a goldmine for those aiming for efficient and profitable farming with roots in three states, Oregon, California, and Montana. She's pioneered innovative organic methods. Helen, welcome to the show. We're excited to have you. Thank you so much. What an honor to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. I was re-listening to one of your podcasts. I love the work that you've been pioneering over the years and come to find out that we have actually worked pretty pretty close in the same geographical area, um, West Idaho and Eastern Oregon, which is very cool. Yes. Yeah, that is exciting. Well, can't be. Um, but what's more important it is really our mission here on the show to empower farmers um, with valuable insights and tools and some of the work, most of the work Helen, that you've done over the years is really great and forward thinking. And I will get to get it, would love to dive into it a little bit today with you. Thank you. So why don't you give us a, a few, take us back a little bit. You don't have to go back all the ways, but get, give us a sense of some of the work that you've done over the past maybe 10 years. Yes, I think I'm going to go back just a little farther than that and tell you how I got to the 10 years uh, of work, which has been much more ecologically oriented. And, and I was much braver the last 10 years uh, for two reasons. I'd, uh, I'd made a lot of mistakes and had a lot of successful uh, adventures with ecological farming. And the second reason is that I uh, met up and married a man uh, from Northern California who was doing something very similar to um, to the kind of farming I'm doing, trying to reduce tillage, uh, minimize inputs, and develop a system where we have a growing root or a living root in the soil all the time, doing all those wonderful things with the microbial community. So I started out in Montana and I was lucky enough to be uh, both uh, a researcher and a farmer. So I was associated with the university and I was able to uh, farm, uh, luckily, because who would want to just be in an office all day, right? Yeah, I feel you there. 
but I but I had the ability to experiment a little bit. So I started in the 1990s with living mulches, and I had to learn how to utilize residue that we added to the surface of the soil that we didn't till in. And I really didn't think that I was getting much nutritional value out of that for the, both the, either the soil or I really hadn't thought as much about the microbial community. But what I learned when I ended up doing both my spring tillage, adding compost and tilling in my living mulches every spring, which at that point were acting as a as a cover crop that had been on the ground for an entire an entire year at that point. I realized that over about a five or six year period, I was getting excessive nutrients, excessive nitrogen and phosphorus and potassium. And I was starting to see some of the signs in my vegetable crops of excessive nutrients like blossom end rod and, and pepper scald. And so I started diminishing and eventually stopped using any compost or uh, serious amounts of off-farm fertilizer and started experimenting with the living mulches and what kind of nutrients I was actually getting from them. And it turned out that as long as I learned to manage them properly, because it's true, when you add something to the surface, the soil surface, rather than tilling it in, it's a much slower and a different process that's entirely microbially controlled. So I had to learn to farm differently. I had to learn to manage a whole bunch of ecological relationships, but I finally learned how to at least ask the right questions and set up the experiments that we, my late husband and I did the last 10 years. And in the meantime, I met uh, my late husband at a conference and joined him on his farm in Northern California, where when there were two of us to egg each other on, we really were able to push the ecological, uh, the ecological window and, and see what we could get away with, how, how minimum, how minimal mm -hmm. could be with our inputs, what really was going on with vegetation competition, our, our living mulch competition and, and God forbid, weed competition. So the last decade, we set up a, a new orchard in eastern Oregon, and we did it entirely no-till. We tried to just add fertilizer to the hole where we were going to plant the trees, and then we did mulch with uh, with uh, hay that was uh, available uh, in the same field where we were going to put the orchard, or at least in a, a contiguous field. And we uh, just did mineral fertilizers only in the hole, added about 50 pounds of hay to the hole of where the tree was going to go. And then we planted into that and we said, all right, let's see, let's see what happens. And I, I have to tell you, it's now eight years later and we've added no nitrogen fertilizer at all to the orchard except the... Uh, the mowed living mulch, it's mowed uh, in between the rows and blown into the orchard uh, crops uh, oh, about four times a year. 
And the only minerals that were added were micronutrients like boron and manganese and um, some rock phosphate uh, and some potassium sulfate uh, that first year. And uh, by golly, uh, the yields have been good. Uh, the quality uh, and the, the taste of the fruit has been excellent. And I'm, I'm waiting to see what happens. I thought this year might be the year that we'd have to add some more minerals, uh, and we haven't. Um, oh, I do need to say that one thing that we do, uh, my husband developed uh, what he called his mineral mix bloom spray. So I still do that uh, at uh, mainly stone fruit, mainly peach, nectarine, and plum, cherry, bloom. I make a micronutrient mix with a little bit of sulfur, and I I uh, apply it during uh, during bloom uh, one to three times, depending on how much rainfall we're getting. But that's basically all the minerals in, in kind of a, a homeopathic version and in, in just a, a, a small amount that we uh, we apply, have applied to this orchard. So again, I'm still learning. <laughs> I'm waiting to see what happens. How long can we get away without adding more mineral fertilizer? How long can we cycle and recycle nutrients by just mowing and blowing? Oh, and that is really cool. I mean, you were wondering how what you could get away with when you changed these processes and it sounds like you're getting away with a lot and are continuing to do it. Yes. And, and the other side of it, that's uh, particularly exciting to me as an entomologist, a, an insect and a biological control uh, person is that this living mulch that we have in between the tree rows or the, the alleyways in the orchard is multitasking both as a fertilizer as we mow it and add nutrients slowly and regularly, excuse me, regularly. I think regularly mm -hmm. is the key. We, we don't add nutrients just all at once in the spring. We mow and blow uh, throughout the season, but we always try to maintain some of that living mulch undisturbed. So that living mulch is multitasking as both fertilizer and as habitat for beneficial organisms. It's, it's creating habitat for spiders and carabid beetles and uh, sequential season-long bloom as long as we selectively mow, meaning that we only mow some of it at any one time and there's always something left undisturbed to be blooming. We provide pollen and nectar with that bloom for parasites and predators. And here's the really exciting thing. We haven't sprayed any disease or, well, any insect management in that orchard. And we started out the first two years spraying uh, lime sulfur for uh, uh, peach leaf curl disease. And uh, then after that, we, we decided, well, maybe we can Let's see what we can do there, too. So we stopped spraying the lime sulfur. And again, the only thing that we were spraying is the mineral mix spray at Bloom. So um, for the stone fruit pests, we've been very successful. Basically, uh, no uh, 
no damage that is at an economical level. Where there's always a little bit of damage because, of course, you have to have the pest for the beneficial insects to have something to feed upon. Uh, so we usually have um, less than 5%, usually around uh, 1% to 3% on the stone fruit. We are still learning how to manage the system with codling moth on apple, that worm you hate to find inside your apples. And for the first couple of years, uh, we were quite successful with less than 10% damage, which to me is, is very successful when you consider that you're you're saving on the spray material and spraying on your saving on your time to spray. But last year and this year, we've seen higher levels. So again, the system is always recalibrating and there's all of these overlapping ecological principles to manage. And I'm hoping that codling moth will be something that I learn to manage without spraying as well as we've managed the other pests in the orchard. But um, I'm open to to possibly not being able to figure it out and codling moth being something that we we have to either learn to live with higher damage or we say, no, this is, this is uh, going to be too much of an economical hit and therefore we have to uh, figure out something that will fit into our system. So Helen, when you talk about these percentages, I'm assuming you're talking about one to 3% like crop loss, with coddling moth, Temper is that ten percent total crop loss? Is that the uh, percentage of, you're speaking of, or of apples? Yes. So and, your apples, and that would be the total percentage of apples, including codling moth has several generations over the over the as the fruit is developing. So over the season, so some of that I have just changed my thinning techniques. You always have to thin your orchard, of course, to get big good sized fruit. So I thin the apples three times now and I I don't thin heavily in the beginning so that I can go back and thin off codling moth damage. So that includes that. Uh, and then the, the part that really hurts, of course, is the stuff that you don't thin off, the, the apples that have codling moth damage at the end close to harvest. Okay, that, that makes a lot of sense. Helen, I'd like to touch back on a point that you made earlier. You said the living mulch provides two things. Um, number one being the fertilizer, number two being the habitat for the organisms. Can you explain to us why that is so important, providing that habitat? Yes, I can. There's been a lot of other research, uh, some really good uh, work with apples and pears uh, in Washington state, the USDA uh, a research station uh, has looked at mowing, different mowing timing and not mowing at all. And uh, I was quite intrigued to find out that the more that the orchards were mowed, the more, uh, uh, well, the fewer uh, predators they had and the more damaged by particular insect pests in the orchard. So I, I think what's what's happening is that when you have an area that you leave undisturbed, and of course not the whole part, but some of it, you're providing habitat for those beneficial insects to 
to uh, get pollen and nectar so that they can have a, a, a way to feed. And then they're right there in the orchard to lay their eggs uh, into, for, for parasites, into the pest itself or for predators laying their eggs and then the predators hatch and start hunting for the pest insects. But the reason I think it's key for it to be right in the orchard is that then there's no lag time between when a pest becomes problematic and when the predators and parasites build up to a point at which biological control is actually effective. So what we're really doing is creating habitat so that the beneficial insects, our biological control organisms, can live where they work. They don't have to commute to work from... <laughs> from, you know, from insectaries or from hedgerows, they're right there. And I think that is key because it speeds up that response time so that you don't have a pest outbreak that is a little out of control before then it's finally managed by the biological control organisms. Mm -hmm. And are wolf spiders, or what are some of those control? Oh, yes, so a wolf spider, I'm glad you asked. I love spiders. I'm, I'm kind of a spider fanatic. My husband would always tease me because I had so many pictures of spiders from doing my research out in the orchard. And I said I was going to have a spider pinup calendar with a spider for every month. And wolf spider would be the perfect apple harvest spider. <coughs> excuse me, because wolf spider is a really strong predator of codling moth. Also, some of the worms that uh, will attack uh, peaches and the stone fruit, but a really wonderful uh, codling moth predator. So we love wolf spiders. I'm so glad you asked. Most people get scared of wolf spiders, but I've seen what they can do on a farm and it's pretty cool. Very cool. I, you know, I, it's funny you should say that. Um, I've just the, in the last decade become re, uh, realized how important amphibians, snakes and and frogs and, and also birds are. And I, I have to admit, I'm, I'm not a fan of running across snakes in the tall grass in the orchard, <laughs> but but I'm understanding now how important they can be. Yeah, snakes can be very beneficial, especially when you think about all of the, the rodent control how that can be, we've had gopher problems up on our farms for years. I mean, that was a lot of my childhood was gopher trapping. Yes. So Helen, when you, we talked a little, a lot about the living mulch, the, the control, the or, organisms controlling the natural processes within this living mulch. Um, having it be fertilizer as well as a habitat for the organisms. But what are your thoughts on the birds? Are you ever concerned that you'd have, I mean, I know this is always a concern, um, but what, what are your thoughts on things that are less controllable at, at the ground level? Uh, and and we, did you just ask me about birds? I think. Yeah. Yes, birds. Uh, and again, I'm glad you asked me about that because I'm still learning. So uh, we had a lot of birds in our orchard in Northern California, and uh, we were a little concerned because they were problematic with the cherries. And uh, again, my husband came up with a, 
an innovative bird scare technique and we were able to to deal with whatever damage they did on cherries. But now I'm beginning to realize that I think they are very important predators in the orchard too. There's been some great science. And if you haven't already seen, uh, look up the Wild Farm Alliance. Uh, um, they have uh, some wonderful birds as uh, beneficial, uh, I can't remember exactly what the title is, darn it, but uh, birds as um, uh, beneficial organisms in orchards and uh, uh, in, in vegetable systems, but uh, some really good data on how important birds are for managing insects and then in our orchard in Cal or in Oregon, when we stopped spraying even the lime sulfur, we noticed that birds were nesting in the orchard. And I thought, oh boy, what is this going to mean? Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, robins and uh, finches and uh, uh, there was a yellow warbler that I I found his nest and followed him through. And he was spending a lot of time hunting worms in the apples and in the peaches. And I, I realized as I did the research that these birds that are nesting are, are primarily insectivorous, that as they're feeding their young, they want a high protein, which is the worms that I want them to catch. So I'm beginning to realize after all my entomological research for the last 30 years, that birds may be playing almost an as important a role in some of the biological control as all my beneficial insects. And some people feel perhaps a more important role in orchards. So all that is to say that uh, we surprisingly did not have damage to our cherries, even with robins who were nesting, who were kind of problematic with cherries in Northern California, we were not seeing damage. So that's really exciting to me. And then I uh, recently sold that orchard and moved back home to Montana. And of course I had to start putting in a new orchard. And I, I moved to a place where there were, was already a big old Macintosh apple tree and a apricot and cherry and pear. And uh, uh, darned if uh, I have a different group of birds and I had a, a crew, actually I'm gonna say a, a, a pack because they were very negative of starlings, about 50, starlings uh, would come periodically. And as the apples ripened, uh, they actually pecked at the apples. And so I guess this is a long way of winded way of saying that insectivorous birds are very beneficial to the orchard. There are also pest birds and those we have to manage, learn to manage, but that it's, it's a little more complex than saying birds are problematic or birds are good. You, you have to know the details. In, in ecological farming, the details always matter. Yes, it seems like no matter what industry you hop around in, I've been in a, in a few, and the, the details make the difference. Indeed. Mm -hmm. Helen, thank you for giving us some perspective on, on birds. I just was interested in, in your, your thoughts there. Um, and then I guess the last thing that I would selfishly like to like to ask you is a, what are the size of 
the orchards that you're dealing with? And do you believe that these systems that you've been pioneering are scalable? That is such an excellent question. So our orchard in uh, California uh, was uh, about 26 acres, but only uh, only about 10 acres in actual orchard. It was split up into uh, uh, fields that were one and a half to two acres in size. And then we had remnants of the oak pine forest in between. So we had a, a lot of habitat in between the fields. Um, so about about 10 acres of trees. The orchard in California, or excuse me, in Oregon, uh, was only uh, about two, two and a half acres. And then uh, my farm in Montana was 30 acres and six acres of vegetables. So all done at a small scale. Um, one thing I didn't mention in, in my book, The Ecological Farm, I, I go through a lot of these details and a lot of the on-farm research, but now I'm going to tell you something that's not in the book. Ooh. So, uh, yes. So um, everybody has their bucket list. And I took on a six months consulting job in Colorado on a 2,000 acre a vegetable farm with a little bit of fruit, but mainly a vegetable farm because I wanted to see, could we use these techniques and could we scale them up? And I have to admit that there were so many issues going on with this farm. Uh, They wanted me there because they were having serious, serious uh, financial problems due to the cost of labor. They had crews of 300 people out there weeding and harvesting. So my my main goal was, can't, could I minimize weeding? And I, I tried, uh, it was kind of funny, on, on a small scale, but it was bigger than, you know, my experiment was as big as some of the farming I had done. We had a five acre uh, block of broccoli without living mulches and a five acre block with and we had to do it in a different way we basically uh, seeded um, this was a wheel line uh, farm and so you had the the, uh, the tractor row and where the wheel line would go and so we had rows quite close to each other so we we had to do both the wheel line and we did some living mulch after we did the transplants of the broccoli, actually we seeded into, or actually I think we seeded and then we transplanted, uh, but we put in transplants. So obviously they had the, they had the, the first start and the, the living mulch, which was a clover right in the broccoli decreased yield a little bit. And, and we had some, you know, some issues with things being a little wild and out of control, which now doesn't bother me uh, 15, 20 years later. But at the time, it it uh, it it was a little appalling. <laughs> mm-hmm. But in the end, what happened was the yield was a little lower than the five acres with the regular tillage and weeding and we had got went through with, with mechanical weed uh, control and then of course we had to go in with a hand crew of of hoeing and what we found was that even though the yield was lower the profitability was higher because we skipped 
that whole hand weeding. Well, we actually, we skipped the mechanical weeding too, but uh, we, we the, the, what really saved us the money was skipping that hand weeding. So uh, I didn't stay long enough to say on a larger scale, I think I would modify. Uh, while on my farms with the living mulches, I do selective mowing. I think I would do... <clears throat> selective mechanical weeding and, and, and avoid the hand weeding. Um, I, th I think I'd like to play with that a little more. As I said, just six months wasn't really enough for me to understand the system and, and tweak all of the ecological relationships. Uh, but I think that's a long-winded way of saying that I think it is scalable. I think it's going to look different and I think it's going to be more mechanically driven. We're going to have to come up with some mechanical solutions that do the things that, that uh, I've been able to do with selective mowing, for example. Mm -hmm. Do you so, hear about larger farms integrating some of these practices at a larger scale in the industry? When I was younger, uh, there were people that were looking at trying to figure out um, how to have, in, with grain crops, how to have uh, some kind of cover crop within, seeded within. And uh, there's some, again, in Washington State, uh, Doug Collins is doing some interesting work with overseeding corn crops with uh, cover crops, again, using using equipment. Uh, figuring out how that's done. And I think there's a lot of promise in uh, overseeding uh, a grain crop at a large scale and then harvesting. And of course, then you have nice cover throughout the winter and then something that can be a cover crop tilled in, or it could be uh, somehow rolled or, or crimped, and, crimped and rolled, and it could be used as part of a rotation for, uh, you know, a no-till crop to or a minimal till crop to follow. So I, I, I do think, again, with, with some great equipment possibilities, <laughs> that there, there are some options for our goal, which is to keep the soil covered, provide a diversity of plant material in the field so you don't just have a monocrop of your crop, and that you can keep the soil covered for large periods of time and maintain a living root in the soil, even after your crop comes off. I, mm -hmm. I think all of the magical things that are growing on in a living root, the, the root exudates, the microbial associations, even the chance to have fungi like mycorrhizae that we don't see in tilled systems, present in, in a, in a, on a large scale in agricultural systems. I think if we can figure out how to integrate cover crops or living mulches, living mulches meaning uh, basically a crop, a cover crop that grows with the crop, if we can figure out how to do living mulches that then become cover crops and are tilled in eventually, and we can... Um, rotate as part of our crop rotation we maybe have areas where we have less or no tillage if we can figure that out i think that will be taking some of these ideas up at a larger scale is that something you're working on right now 
I am not. I'm an old lady, and so I am not doing any large scale. I'm doing all small scale. But I'm looking to you, the younger generation, your mission, should you choose to accept it, <laughs> to try some of these ideas. And I would be glad to brainstorm with anybody that wanted to try these uh, ideas. Or so, the, the, when I say these ideas, just the general ecological principles and then come up with what kind of what kind of tools, what kind of ways of doing it would you, you know, would you be able to do? And people who are good with equipment. I was so lucky uh, that my late husband was really good at uh, making equipment work and and uh, manufacturing things to, to fit our system. So I think that's what it's going to take. Yes, the younger generation is definitely pivotal, pivotal in this change. And I am certainly appreciative of the work that you have done in this field, um, Helen. So it's, it's truly great. And along those lines, can you give us a brief overview of the book that you've written? Yes, I can. I, um, my, my husband and I were doing lots of presentations and writing things down. And we started an outline. And then uh, he had a farm accident and was in a coma for a long time. And I was trying to get him to listen <laughs> to, I was trying to wake him up. And we were listening to uh, other people's research uh, podcasts and webinars. And I said, wow, this is really interesting. I started writing it down. And pretty soon I was writing a book and I took all of our research and I began to understand things as I did it. So I, I basically have a book that starts out the, the first, uh, uh, the first half of the book is making a case for a systems approach and explaining how we grew our own fertilizer, what it takes to manage those surface applied residues that I was talking about, how to understand the difference in carbon to nitrogen ratios of the different residues you are applying and how important that is to decomposition quickly enough so that you can maintain a crop yield. And then all of the biological control components of the system. So I explain all of that in, I'm sorry to say, minute detail that is great for those who are very curious and uh, very engaged and can be overwhelming for some people. Uh, but I've been told that, that they can still get through it. And then the second half of the book is going through the vegetable crops, going through the fruit crops, and looking at uh, all of the different pests involved and and how to manage them ecologically, and then a troubleshooting guide with ecological approaches to managing all of the different diseases and insects. And, and then I, I basically give you options that are have uh, minimal in, ecological impact, moderate and high ecological impact. And sometimes to make money, you have to do the high ecological impact. But I want us to understand what what's going on in the system when we do that. So that's basically the book. The second half is absolutely for everybody. And the first half I would hope is for everybody. But I understand that sometimes ecology and and all of the experiments that I talk about 
might be a little, a little um, overwhelming at one first read. <laughs> right. But like we mentioned earlier, the details do matter in this stuff and understanding those um, I think can, can make or break the, the new processes or the new what you're trying to Im implement on your farm. I, I really agree with you. And, and one of the reasons I explain the science and the principles uh, so much and take you on my journey of discovery and show you all my mistakes. I've only talked about successes mostly today, but uh, in the book, I explain all the mistakes. I, I think it's important because I don't want you to just emulate my system. I want you to say, okay, I understand this principle. So, all right, if we do this, I could do this here in a different climate, a different soil type, different water, different crops, and, and different markets. People with different markets are going to have different needs. But, but if you understand the principles, you'll be able to be creative and make your own system. I love that. I mean, you can use it as a, as a how-to guide, but customize it as you see fit because let's, let's face it, like North Dakota is not Iowa, is not Montana. Everyone is working with different factors. Absolutely. And, and while details matter, microclimates and, and all of the, the, the different ecologies you're working in matters. Absolutely. Helen Adhau, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate your time today. And just before we sign off, the, what is the name of the book? The Ecological Farm. And actually, I'm going to... I'm, I couldn't even be simple enough to have a simple title. So it's called The Ecological Farm, A Minimalist, No-Till, No-Spray, Selective Weeding, Grow Your Own Fertilizer, System for Organic Agriculture. Darn it, ecology is so wonderfully messy and complex that even the title is long, but basically it's called The Ecological Farm. Well, they're complex just like we are as humans. So Indeed. it fits. <laughs> Amazing. Helen, what, what is the one thing that you'd like to leave us with today? I would like all of us to challenge ourselves uh, as my students challenged me and got me moving towards reduced tillage and no-till. I'd like to challenge us to add to our systems more cover crops. If we do nothing else, let's add more cover crops. Let's figure out ways to have parts of our farm be in living root, undisturbed, multi-species that bloom and provide sequential flowering for beneficial insects. Some part of our farms, let's have cover crops with a lot of diversity that we can then have some of these wonderful living roots and habitat for microorganisms and beneficial insects. Challenge yourself. Yes. Yes. Challenge that. yourself with more living roots on the farm. Embrace the complexity and let it happen. I, 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 that's maybe the new title. That should be the title. Embrace <laughs> complexity and let it happen. Darn. <laughs> <laughs> maybe well, maybe a second book. 
Okay, there you go. When I have the research from your experiments, taking this up to scale. Oh, I like the challenge. Okay. Right, let's see what we can do, Helen. <laughs> Thank Helen, you. I appreciate your time today. It's been great. Thank you. Of course. And all listeners, hope you found some gold nuggets in today's episode. Look forward to next week's. And of course, please rate and share if you enjoyed it. All right. Thanks, everyone. See ya.